This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What a way to start a radio show, huh? One of the true masterpieces of broadcast understatement. Good morning, everybody. I'm Bob Solter. That even made Dave turn around that line. Well, welcome to our program. Hopefully... You've started to get yourself prepared for what we're going to get hit with weather-wise. Because it's going to be hot, hot, hot this week. As we officially hit a weak heat wave. Oh, those temperatures. Rising, rising, rising. Make sure you have plenty to drink. Keep yourself hydrated. Well, on our program this morning, we have a doozy of a show. At least I'm hoping that's the case. And it's a a show where, in both hours of our program, hopefully we'll have some participation by some folks listening to us. We have very good guests joining us. I'm pleased to say in hour one of our program, a guest is joining us who we had spoken with in September of last year. We had a lively discussion at that time with Gwen Griffith Dixon. She is kind enough to have joined us again on our program. I literally connected with her uh, less than two hours ago, as a matter of fact. She is a uh, visiting professor at King's College in London. She founded an interesting uh, foundation that we'll talk a little bit about, uh, too, as well. We talked about that a little bit in a previous discussion that we had. Uh, She also oversaw the creation of Britain's de-radicalization program. She's the author of Bleed Back and the upcoming book, Seven Ways to Prevent Terrorism. Uh, She is joining us actually from London on our program this morning. It's nice to have have you join us again. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, How are you? Yeah, okay. Okay. We've obviously, the the city has been in shock and mourning for the last 10 days or so, but it's a tough city and a resilient city, and we're bouncing back and carrying on. What is the mood? How would you characterize the mood of people on the streets of London? It's probably remarkable, depending what you'd expect. I mean, 
We did go through a lot of this during the IRA days, which I remember well. Mm -hmm. So London is used to kind of getting hit hard and then refusing to be stopped. And one of the things that in many ways it's been very encouraging is refusing to be intimidated, also refusing to be panicked into starting to hate and turn against each other. There's always a strong voice, especially in London. It happened in Manchester, too. But a strong voice about we're not letting this divide us, we're not letting this turn us against each other. That's what the terrorists want to achieve, and we're not going to do it for them. All right, let's go back in time. Now this is a couple of weeks back, amazingly enough, because it seems like it was just yesterday. That horrific attack, it was at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Um, What was your reaction when you heard about it? I suppose there's always a mingled feeling of terrible shock, but also the grim sense that uh, we know that the police are fighting these constantly. They're constantly disrupting plots and arresting people. So uh, I wouldn't say you expect it because that sounds too accepting. You don't accept it, but you know that this is the reality that we're living with. And there is a very famous uh, thing that was said by one of the IRA terrorists. I can't tell you how many police officers in counterterrorism have quoted that to me, which is, we, meaning the terrorists, we, the terrorists, only have to get lucky once. You have to be lucky every single time. And the police feel that really strongly, that if, if one attack out of many gets through, you know, they, they failed, or at the IRA or whatever terrorist group can just keep trying and trying and trying, the failures don't matter to them. They just need that one lucky hit. And so uh, certainly from the police and security services, they have a feeling that uh, it's an une- in one way it's an uneven playing field. And so you, you just know how many uh, things they're coping with. And it's, I suppose, tragically inevitable, inevitable that some of it's going to get through. So I suppose in my case, I also felt this renewed determination to keep Keep fighting, keep uh, keep doing what I'm doing because it's it's not a, an enjoyable subject to deal with. There are other things I could be doing, and I just think no, I have to keep on with this. Well, what about that initial reaction by some to, and you know, it's I guess in a way almost natural for some parents, some guardians of you know young women uh, in many cases who would have been attending the concert mm. to immediately say, you know, you're not going to any more concerts or something like that. I mean, if if we do that, are we just giving in? Yeah, I, I gosh, that, that's such a hard one in that um, any parent gets protective. Uh, and I would say you don't want to totally change your lifestyle uh, to give in to something that this, this sounds heartless. I don't mean it to be heartless. It's still statistically pretty improbable that you're going to die in a terrorist, terrorist attack. But, of course, it's real. And it sticks to no comfort if someone you know and love has been injured or died. What I would say is that uh, per- parents and anyone else, to be honest, has a right to demand that security is absolutely top-notch. And if you're not satisfied with the level of security then uh, maybe you should think twice about doing something. I mean, uh, I don't think as a woman I should avoid going out on the streets because I might get attacked or raped 
but there are places I won't go at certain times of night. So it's it's balancing uh, living your life as you feel you should be able to lead it with being cautious. And I don't think we should uh, totally disrupt our lifestyles, but I think that strand of protection from um, the, the authorities, whether it's just the physical protection through to uh, detection of the, of the plots, that needs to happen. I don't know if it got reported um, your side of the Atlantic, but after the London attack, since there were two things on bridges, and that looks like it's now a thing or a theme, uh, the, the police have gone along and put concrete barriers along the roadway on the bridges, some of the main bridges in London. Just a simple thing that would at least stop that kind of attack. Won't stop everything, but at least someone trying to drive a, a van or a truck along the sidewalk. At least they can't do that. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of basic precautions that we should expect um, that, that the authorities will take. And uh, if they don't, if you think that that this does indicate there's a risk, then of course maybe you should think twice about. Um, doing certain kinds of activities. Now, the attack that took place at um, London Bridge, um, obviously that was a week ago. What was your reaction to that? It's just uh, heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking, and you think how easily it could be you or your children or your family members. We were just there a couple of days ago. It's a place I love to go, that area around Borough Market, and I've just taken some visiting family around there. And it's such a lovely place just to spend time and and hang out. Um, the, The emotional reaction, I suppose, mingles again with this sense of, um, Grim determination. It's interesting how easy it now is to carry out an attack. That's something we need to take seriously. You just rent a van and grab a kitchen knife. Uh, You don't need the bomb-making skills. You don't need terrorist cells. Um, So there is also, I have to say, a really intense feeling of frustration on my part and the part of others who are working against this. Uh, and watching it, um, how what the, the response of the politicians is. Of course, for us, it happened just days, less than a week before the election. So it was inevitable that this was going to be kind of catapulted into the front line of issues. And uh, I just kept thinking, we, we deserve better. We know what we need to do, and we've, we're not doing it. We're not doing it as much as we should be in, in London. Well, does it require more resolve on the part of the government? I think it, it's not necessarily a doing more, it's a doing different. Um, there is a certain amount of more that's required, but it's resources. One of the things I've been very frustrated by, I think, is it's finally come to pass. Uh, the current prime minister, when she was home secretary, cut the police budgets by 20%, which is a big cut. <laughs> a big cut in the time of terrorism, and we lost 20,000 police officers. And one of the areas that was hardest hit was what their jargon is called community engagement. And that can often be seen as a soft option, I suppose. Some people think, you know, you need the hard-hitting measures, that's what's effective. But our direct experience, including preventing a a terrorist attack ourselves, is that community engagement is really where it starts. And the more that you, you don't need sophisticated bomb-making cells, you just need you know, one or two or three people to 
get a van and a kitchen knife, you know, the more that we need to rethink where the front line lies. And the front line lies with members of the public interacting with police. All right. I want to talk more about that very point as we continue in our discussion. We'll also... Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter on our program on The Fan on Sunday mornings. We get into discussions we hope are interesting and bring you guests that uh, hopefully will spark some thought on uh, your part as well. We're talking this hour of our program with Gwen Griffith-Dixon. She has joined us once previously on our program. As I mentioned, she's a visiting professor at King's College in London. She is speaking with us from London on our program this morning. Uh, She is also the author of Bleed Back and the upcoming book, Seven Ways to Prevent Terrorism. And she's talking with us on our program. I said what we'll try to do as well is um, if there's some folks who are on point with some of these things that uh, Gwen is raising in discussion and want to talk about this uh, topic of terrorism, ways to prevent it, how to deal with this, what the public should be doing. 877-337-6666. That's our number here at the fan. And we were going in that direction before we paused for our update and messages, uh, Gwen, of the approach that the public should take. What do you see the role of, quote-unquote, average citizens being? There's a whole range of things that average citizens, ordinary people, all of us, uh, can do depending you know who you are and what your position is in life and what your situation is the um, public are really the ones who are best placed to notice when something is going wrong with somebody and what tends to happen then how terrorists recruit people in the first place how people get drawn into uh, uh, being attracted to violence violent movements bottom line is that there's something already going wrong in their life. It may not immediately be obvious, but there's something going wrong in terms of their identity, their sense of value, their sense of whether they can contribute uh, anything to the society, whether they're disrespected, or whether they have some some meaning in their life. It's not uh, usually some religious seeker who, you know, finds this religion and then gets brainwashed by religion. I know to think that because we see the link with a certain strand of religion but it's not just simple religious brainwashing. So the sooner that you can notice that people are starting to get attracted to violence, get disaffected, start getting angry, lashing out, speaking in certain ways, the sooner you can intervene. Now, the um, the terrorists don't have some completely different human playbook they're working from. They're basically using basic human skills, friending people, then manipulating them and bringing them around. But what that means is that ordinary people can do the same thing. It just takes some basic natural human skills training up, and we can start to intervene and and, um, hopefully get these people onto a better path before they go on that path. Of course, uh, more immediately, there's there's a question of reporting things to the police and to the United Kingdom itself. A good system in theory, um, and people were using it, but that's where something seems to have fallen down in Manchester and London. Well, that always gets into an interesting area because, you know, in this country we very often hear, and I said this on the air last week, I've said it before here, 
The slogan is, if you see something, meaning something out of the ordinary, the idea is to say something about it to someone in authority, um, preferably somebody in law enforcement, homeland security, whoever it is that you can contact, uh, as opposed to seeing it and just not reacting. I mean, this is, we're living in a completely different age now. You know, where we have to look at a lot of things as potential weapons um, and view the fact that basically anybody anywhere can be a target now. That That may be a difficult thing for most people to comprehend. That is very difficult because uh, we're still, uh, well, we expect to feel safe in our societies, which is a good thing, and we don't expect to feel at risk just going about our lives. Certain things that we actually we become slightly blind to, and we don't feel under threat because we put our seatbelt on when we drive or we lock our car when we park. You know, we just take it as common sense. And it may be that as communities and societies, we've got to expand our notion of common sense self-protection. Uh, it's been kind of, I suppose Londoners are really used to it because it was a big thing in during the, as I said earlier, the IRA years when Northern Irish terrorism was what was happening and was actually much more frequent than what we've experienced um, in this new wave. And people just got used to things like on the subway in, in London, there were no garbage cans. You couldn't throw something out because those became uh, frequent ways to places where people with the IRA would plant a bomb. So they just got rid of garbage cans in public. There was one point where part of the uh, this, the downtown area where the sort of financial equivalent of Manhattan, the sort of financial legal center, they actually just put up like a ring of steel, they called it. You you literally couldn't drive in there, and there were just police checkpoints on a normal road. And we, we got used to it. And those have all happily gone away now. Um, that's the sort of... Um, but that's kind of like last decade's threat. And that's, I think, why governments as well as people are pretty unnerved now, because that was still a time when people made explosives and left a bomb somewhere. And so the, in a way, things say something, while that's important, it's still focusing on objects and property and what, what people used to do and not necessarily what people do now. I mean, you can't report everyone who's buying a knife in a kitchenware store. <laughs> you can't report everyone who's renting a van from a, a U-Drive place. However, if you see a vehicle that's being operated in a very unusual fashion, um, the idea is to react, to, to yes, speak yes, out about absolutely. it. I mean, absolutely. Ironically, some of the people that had expressed concerns about one of the London attackers saw this van appear and then drive off on the day in a very wild manner and uh, I think phoned the police at that point too. So absolutely, I'm not uh, certainly not saying you shouldn't report things that that just seem of concern to you. Um, I think it's also that what we kind of need to expand our awareness is looking out for each other and, and noticing people that seem to be Noticing when our neighbors or students or people we know seem to be um, heading down the wrong road. And it's, it's partly a question of human human needs and human motivation and not just the physical objects like the, uh, the bombs and the vans and the knives. 
Mm. And when we have an incident or incidents like what took place at London Bridge, where you've got, you know, not only a vehicle being used, but then you have these actual physical attacks on people. Um, it's, again, at a level where that's a very hard thing to prevent in a blanket fashion. Uh, and I would tend to think that at most shopping areas, uh, you know, a lot of places where people gather in, in mass, people have to be terrified. It's, it's funny that people aren't. Um, maybe, this is, maybe this is London. I don't know how it would be in America. Um, but actually, if you, if you think about how America responds or doesn't respond in terms of the mass shootings that are more frequent in America than the terrorist attacks, I think there's more of a sense of um, people aren't afraid of going to a shopping mall or to their place of work, even though these shootings do happen. Um, I'm not condoning them, obviously. I'm not uh, saying this is a good thing, but I'm saying I suppose it depends psychologically. There's a strange group psychology of what you're most used to. I get the feeling that people get more panicked in America about what they see as terrorist attacks compared to what they see as a, a shooter, uh, you know, live shooter incident. And they're more afraid of terrorism as a thing. I mean, that may be because of the complex controversies about gun control. So I know there's a lot of politics around it. Um, here in London, it's probably, or in England, in Britain generally, it's probably the other way around. Uh, we're more used to a sense of political violence as something that we need to be striving but people have, um, people were not put off going, you know, back on the underground after the the seven seven, what we called it in two thousand and five. You know, there were people were quite nervous for a while, but normality kicks in really quickly. So um, I have to say, people have just not changed what they're doing this time round. There was more impact in two thousand and five, but uh, people have not. I think on the whole really changed what they're doing. I haven't heard that so much. I think with the sort of era of wielding knives, you're you're back on a level of the kind of violence that can break out at a nightclub, gang fights, as I was saying, the mass shooter, someone who's agreed on lashing out. It's it's kind of back in a range of that horrible violence that can kick in from a random violent individual. The Ariana Grande bombing was different. And it was a bomb. It was more people. And, of course, it was incredibly poignant. It's too gentle a word. There's a certain tragedy about you losing your girls. Um, that's just, I think, torn the world apart. Mm -hmm. The use of social media by those who perpetrate acts of terrorism and seek to, how is that, or how has that, I guess, change the way in which the terrorists operate and, recru and recruit? Hugely. Absolutely hugely. Um, ISIS is, Islamic State is different from Al-Qaeda in many ways, um, including uh, different in how they recruit and who they try to recruit. 
probably the, if you had to just isolate one biggest difference in how it relates in terms of the West, it's this, it's social media. They have really grabbed hold of it and used it incredibly powerfully because by using social media, Facebook, Twitter, direct messaging, they can get right into the home and speak very personally to young people anywhere in any country. It's not just kind of the vague blanket propaganda or people on people on the ground trying to recruit like you had in the days of Al-Qaeda or, or other similar kinds of terrorist groups. And so one of the things that was so disturbing, this was a few years ago, Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. On our program, we're in a discussion with Gwen Griffith-Dixon. Uh, she is talking with, us, uh, talking with us about this topic of terrorism and uh, talking with us about some of the things that uh, are being done and have been done in um, London, which is uh, where Gwen is speaking with us from. She is a visiting professor at King's College in London, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you were the author of a Bleed Back and an upcoming book entitled Seven Ways to Prevent Terrorism. I also wanted to talk a little bit about your foundation. We mentioned this last time that you had joined us on our program. Would you tell us about the foundation, first of all? Yeah, we, we set up um, to try and combine best quality sort of thinking and research along with actual grassroots action, because usually charities do one or the other. Um, and that was the, that was the aim, and we set up to be interfaith, so that we were bringing together different people from different religions to kind of think about the, the major issues of our day as they affected religion and society. A few months before we had the big um, attack on the London subway, the underground, in 2005, so we got kind of pulled into that quite a lot. So a lot of what we've done has actually focused on on this issue. And uh, our focus has um, been to build particularly good relationships between local religious communities and uh, and government and authorities. So one program we had uh, went all to every police force in the country, uh, took part in it, and that was basically building trust and breaking down the barriers between the Muslim communities and the police. And getting them to kind of restart their relationship in a productive way. That one actually prevented a terrorist attack, which was um, a big moment for us. And we learned a lot of lessons from that, uh, as did the police. And it's kind of telling, I think, that one got chopped during the after the economic crash and there were massive that program. Uh, had the, sort of the funding, basically funding was, was yanked away from it. And some police forces continued with it independently, but then their budgets were cut too. And I think it's just... Um, it's telling, really, that uh, what happened in these latest two attacks is that people did phone into the police. You know, they're, they're still working on that relationship, but the police have been, I think, pretty overwhelmed um, with lack of numbers. So we did that sort of thing, and we um, intervened and sort of between the government and police, uh, sorry, government and Muslim communities, for Muslim communities that were setting up projects to actually... Um, turn people away from terrorism working on the ground. That was uh, 
a sort of nationwide program, lots of independent local communities. Could only be two people, could be ten people, mainly small, very grassrootsy organizations that just had that knack of working with young people, um, counseling, dealing with the religious issues, but dealing with the other issues in their lives. And again, there were some really, um, really good projects that had funding cuts after the um, the austerity programs came in. So it's uh, I've been sort of it sounds uh, horrible, but I've been sort of waiting for the um, the impact of that to be felt down the line. We had people all over the country working to kind of spot the signs and and uh, turn people away. And it was probably only a matter of time before those cuts began to be felt. Mm. You also had overseen the creation of the de-radicalization program uh, in Britain. What was that experience like? That was, um, that's the thing I was just referring to, where at the time what we did was work small organizations that mm-hmm. had the motivation and the idea and the know-how to work with this. And there is a there is still a government one government sort of na- nationwide program called Channel that they set up some years ago, which was I think built on the right insight that we need some way to intervene before people turn to criminal activity. So I think what you saw with the Orlando attack last year that um, people might report something to the police and if the person might be showing worrying signs of being attracted to political violence. But if they haven't committed a crime, there's nothing the FBI can do or the police can do, generally speaking. You can't arrest someone and imprison them because of what they think and believe. That's an important right. Um, But in this case, we see they're sort of heading down towards a path where they might act on it in a violent way. So we set up this program where people could take referrals and then there would be a panel that would decide, okay, yeah, this person actually needs some kind of mentoring, some kind of counseling. It wasn't compulsory, so you know, this person doesn't have to do it. But it does mean at early stages you could channel them towards expert help. And so that's the program that we were helping to manage. So we were managing the, the different in, uh, individual community projects. It was very much a local grassroots thing, so it wasn't one center, one nationwide thing where you spied on people and dragged them here. It was voluntary and it was people getting counseling. It might be help with employment skills because a lot of times that's actually what helps bring someone out is just getting getting a life, you know, getting their life back on track. So it, it was a really good program and it's still in place, but they cut it back to, you know, just a, a couple of hours contact with one person rather than the big wraparound programs that we used to have. Mm. But the approach, I think, is really good, and it's one that I, to some extent, I think some individual Muslim communities in the United States have done their part, but I've just for years I've thought and have said and have said to um, uh, people in Washington. Uh, Gwen? Oops, I think uh, Gwen is disconnected with us. We're talking with uh, Gwen Griffith-Dixon on our program on the fan, um, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, Gwen is a visiting professor at King's College in London. Uh, she had uh, founded the Lokahai Foundation, which is a charity that uh, prevented a terrorist attack, as she had mentioned uh, earlier in our discussion. 
Uh, she oversaw the creation of Britain's de-radicalization program. She's the author of a couple of books, one entitled Bleed Back, an upcoming book, and we'll talk with her about as well, entitled Seven Ways to Prevent Terrorism. And we've been talking with her since we started our program at 6 this morning on this topic of uh, preventing terrorism. I mentioned, too, that what we try to do is work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. Apparently, not too many people are really enthused about this topic. And I guess this kind of gets into an area as well, because at times I wonder if we kind of get overwhelmed um, by these incidents of terrorism. And Gwen, I, I, I wonder at times, do people almost get apathetic? I um, kind of daily, <laughs> not apathetic quite. Well, that's yeah, that that is a good word, Bob. To be honest, but I think it's it's not that I stop caring. It's just this sense of oh, what can I do? Right. Um, not is there any point? Cause there's certainly a point to doing it, but but are we succeeding? Am I contribute anything? Contributing anything? Maybe I should just work in a nicer area. It's kind of I'd love to say I jump out of bed fired up with mission and feeling confident and optimistic, but I have to be honest and say it's like keep putting one foot in front of the other. Um, The rewards are big often when they happen. Often they're small and you have no idea that you had a positive impact. And you just, there's a lot of aggression. There's even aggression from people who should be all aligned on the same side. Um, But I suppose it's political, like like any others, you know, people tearing each other down. But it is a it is a, a difficult thing to be in. And when you, if you're reading a lot of material, um, on either side, I mean, this isn't this is for all kinds of terrorism, all kinds of violence, um, including the sort of the racist variety. You just um, you wish your soul could take a shower afterwards. You wish your mind and your soul could just kind of lather up and, and wash all the residue of the hate, the hate speech away. So yeah. it, I, I don't have the right personality for this. <laughs> I'm more of a sort of um, gentle, positive, um, prefer to work by charisma, you know, and, and positively motivating people. So it's, this this one is like a, a test of the soul for me. But I, so I keep sort of thinking, well, you know, other people can do this, and I keep getting pulled back. So I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's a very sensitive question, Bob, and very very interesting one. But I wish I had a it's all great, it's all easy sort of answer. But no, it's definitely one for endurance and you know just stickability, bounce back ability. On the author side, I've mentioned the fact that you had uh, authored Bleed Back. Would you tell folks listening to us what Bleed Back was all about? Yeah, Bleed Back, um, it kind of in a way follows on from the last question. Bleed Back was my private way of coping for a while. <clears throat> I just kind of thought, well, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night or really, really in the mor- early in the morning uh, and you can't back- get back to sleep, it was my sort of therapy, just writing it all out. Um, and I wrote out what I was experiencing and thinking about in the form of a novel, because it's more interesting that way. And then as I began to write, um, I thought, actually, I should take this seriously and publish a novel. And the idea sort of took hold, and I thought, well, actually, telling stories is 
absolutely critical in, in motivating people, in helping people to understand someone else, in dealing with issues. And that's, we used it a lot in that, some of the programs that we were doing, just letting people tell their stories. And that's, that kind of achieves change much more than, you know, giving information or a chart or a PowerPoint with statistics. So I, I um, wrote this story that really is dealing with all the big issues around terrorism and the war on terror um, today, as realistic as I could make it without um, revealing any state secrets, because I'm bound by the Official Secrets Act and at least some of my work. And then I just thought, right, I'm going to make it a thriller and make it a really good read, <laughs> and realistic and a good read. A lot of thrillers are, you know, they're just escapism, but this is a real life uh, designed to be gripping, and it's also got some the lead characters. There's three different points of view characters, and they're all ones that your average, I think your average American citizen wouldn't naturally empathise with. But that was part of it. It's kind of okay. Let's just watch these people and see what what journey they're taking. So it, it's a novel, um, but it's a novel about real life. And the book Seven Ways to Prevent Terrorism. Yeah, that's that's a fairly um, that that whole idea came up since we last spoke, Bob. So it's fairly recent, and we're we're kind of nearly nearly finishing with it now. It was my conviction that actually what I needed to do was not academic publications at the moment. What I needed to do was get this message out that it's up to us, and there's things that ordinary people can do. In fact, there's things ordinary people can do uh, that police can't do. And so it's really um, distilling into a very readable form uh, for your average person. Uh, you know, it's sort of book that anyone could pick up and read and get the core, both about how the recruiters recruit, but how we can undo that very tactic. Because one of the things I find kind of disturbing about the counter-terrorist strategy, both sides of the Atlantic, is um, it's like they haven't really been paying attention to how people actually get into it and trying to stop that. So you either get, okay, the more military options or you get talk uh, from <clears throat> Theresa May in the last you know, election speeches that mean that we have to stop tolerating extremism. Yeah, but, but how do you actually undo it? How do you actually prevent them hand-to-hand? So that's what I wanted to do. I mean, you, you raised a social media question. It was a really good one. And I was saying, well, they can reach into your home and talk to your teenagers. So how do you make your teenagers or yourself or your neighbors or students bulletproof? You know, what we need to do is build resilience within ourselves, so kind of natural immunity to all of us towards violence rather than trying to put up the concrete barriers which they're going to find a way through. So it's really about how do we violence-proof society in a way that we can all we can all undertake, starting with the baby steps, but also some of the bigger steps, I hope. Very interesting uh, discussion we're having with uh, Gwen Griffith-Dixon on our program on The Fan this hour. As I mentioned earlier in our discussion, uh, Gwen is a visiting professor at King's College in London. She's speaking with us from London on our program this morning. Uh, she has the author uh, previously of Bleed Back, and she's working on an upcoming book entitled Seven Ways to Prevent Terrorism. She's been talking with us about this topic of terrorism. 
and approaches that um, can be taken. Um, some of the experience uh, in London talked a little bit about the mood, um, the atmosphere uh, there and now on the streets, as well after uh, the recent uh, attacks. When we talk about the future and talk about the way in which we look at the future, are you hopeful that we will get a handle on terrorism? Yes, I am. I am hopeful, actually. Um, despite my personal ups and downs, this is not going to last forever. And, and it helps the hopefulness on the British side because we've seen Northern Ireland um, be overcome. And that wasn't overcome by a war or by bombing Northern Ireland into a car park or rounding up all the Catholics in England and imprisoning them or some of the extreme measures that you know people call for when they're in a an understandable outrage state. Um, you, you resolve it ultimately through communities. It was really the, the lesson about communities defeating terrorism. I learned from police here that worked on the Northern Ireland issue, and then I just thought it proved true in my own work. So I think um, I think in time it will resolve. The, the actual battlefield in Iraq and Syria um, is being slowly, is being won. What I would expect to see from that, there is an upsurge in violence here, so it's going to feel like it gets worse before it gets better, because as they get more and more despairing of creating their ideal so-called Islamic state in the Middle East, they're going to be urging people just to do whatever they can to attack citizens uh, in their home countries. So it's going to get worse if we don't scale up our efforts locally. But I think if we can invest in our young people, invest in making all of them, and it's not just the Muslims, actually, it's those who would be drawn into racist violence, anti-violence, any sort of violence. If we can work on making all of us more resilient, really, more immune to those calls of hatred and violence, then I'm more optimistic than I would be any other time of human history. Thank you very much for joining us on our program, Gwen. Gwen, certainly good luck continued with your work, too. Thank you so much, Bob. 7 o'clock straight up this Sunday morning. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.